0: Open your Bibles, again, if you will, to uh, Luke 22. Luke 22. We'll look this morning at verses 47 to 53, which is the uh, section of the rest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the collision of uh, light and darkness can be fearsome, and it can be beautiful. We see it every morning uh, as the sun comes up and dispels the darkness. We see it every night as the darkness seems to win, uh, and sometimes uh, quietly uh, the sun, uh, the light drifts away and the darkness takes over, and sometimes with uh, uh, some kind of a fearsome uh, suddenness that happens. But um, the collision of light and darkness is an interesting thing, and that's, that's the story of our text this morning, in a sense. Not physical light and darkness, but the, the, the light of the world uh, colliding with the darkness of, uh, the, uh, the, uh, of Satan and the forces of, of evil. That's what's going on in this uh, arrest of Jesus in the garden. So let me read it, and let's think about it a while. Interesting little passage. Verse uh, 47. While he was still speaking... This is an interesting little text. It's very, very brief. Uh, Luke's account is the briefest of all the Gospels, though this event is recorded in all four of the Gospel accounts. But here, this this, uh, account consists of three parts, three short little acts, if you will. And and we see that division in the fact that Jesus delivers here three rebukes. Uh, One to Judas for betraying him with a kiss, and one to the disciples for striking with their sword. And one to the Jewish leaders who arrested him in secret, though he taught publicly and they could have arrested him at any time. Those three rebukes are not necessarily directed toward us, but from those three rebukes, I think we can, as we reflect on them, as I've reflected on them, I think we can derive three lessons that we ought to hear. So that's how we deal with it. The first is this, first lesson is this. Guard against the ugliness of hypocrisy. Guard against the ugliness of hypocrisy. I suspect everyone in this place has heard someone uh, excuse their lack of faith by saying, well, the church is full of hypocrites. But it, and that's true. But at the same time, to be honest, within the church family... Hypocrisy doesn't always seem to bother us very much. We see one another doing things inconsistent with our faith, and we excuse it, for no one's perfect. Plus, we're saved by by grace, not works. And, of course, excusing the hypocrisy we see in others is not just grace. It's a form of self-protection for who among us doesn't sometimes deny in our own actions, the things that we confess to believe with our mouths. But lest we take a casual view of our little inconsistencies, the Spirit has given us this account of Judas's betrayal. And here we learn a couple of things about hypocrisy. First, we learn where hypocrisy takes us. What we see here in Judas's action is not actually what we would call hypocrisy, it's betrayal. It's treason. He delivers Jesus, his friend, his teacher, his Lord, delivers him over to those who he knows plan to kill him. But as we saw before, this is not Judas's first compromise. He had been deceiving Jesus and the others for a long time. Concerning the money, he had been skimming funds from the apostles' uh, purse. He had, been, he had feigned righteous concern for the poor in order to have more money than he could embezzle. And the, this very night, he had piously eaten the Passover meal with Jesus, as the 30 pieces of silver lay snugly in his pocket, for which he had betrayed Jesus. But you see, this is how hypocrisy works. It takes us step by step in compromise, slowly searing our conscience, gradually getting used to professing the truth and doing otherwise, growing more and more committed to self-interest and less concerned about the Lord until outright betrayal somehow insanely Seems logical. That's the road the hypocrite walks. And some of us have started down that road, I suspect. I've thought a lot lately about the business of sowing and reaping. It just seemed like for a while I've, I kept coming to that in the scriptures. And wherever I, wherever I read, there it was again. What I've come to understand is this. If our thoughts and words and actions are like seeds, then there is nothing that we ever do or think or say that doesn't either sow to the flesh to grow up weeds of destruction in our life or sow to the Spirit to grow eternal life in our life that makes the seemingly insignificant little controversy a little inconsistency a seed which immediately begins to grow and take over our lives and that's what happened to judas until hypocrisy became betrayal so jesus warns us to guard against hypocrisy The other thing we learn from Jesus' exchange with Judas is the ugliness of hypocrisy. As we all know, Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. This week in my study, I learned a bit more about the poignancy of that act. The grammatical structure, verse 38, puts an emphasis on the word kiss. Emphasis on the fact that a kiss was used... To betray Jesus. That's the point of Jesus' rebuke to Judas. If we put it in the kind of language that we would speak, it would go something like this. Jesus says to Judas, A kiss? Are you kidding me, Judas? You would betray the Son of Man with a kiss? That's a little different emphasis than we might read at first, but that's the emphasis. Such is the ugliness of hypocrisy. In fact, there's another significant grammatical note here. The word for kiss is filetto. Has everybody, anybody ever heard the word filetto before? We get the word Philadelphia from that. Filetto, love. Philadelphia, brotherly love. Filetto is a word for love, it's also the word for kiss. I love Philip Riken's... Uh, Description. He says, a gentle kiss is the surest, sweetest expression of affection. Consider the soft kiss of a father gives his baby girl at bedtime or the first kiss a couple shares after settling a quarrel or the last kiss a mother gives her son before he leaves home. Consider the kissing embrace of long-lost friends or a husband and wife in their golden years. The same God who gave us hearts for love gave us lips for kissing. In fact, the Greek New Testament verb that means to love also means to kiss. To kiss is to love. Except, that is, when a kiss is to betray. Oh, the ugliness of Judas' hypocrisy. To take that which means love and use it to betray to hand over to death. J.C. Raw calls it wickedness under the cloak of love. And so Jesus makes the point with Judas. He doesn't let that pass. He, he presses it with Judas. Not that he's going to dissuade him, but to teach all who would later call themselves disciples, you and me, guard against the ugliness of of hypocrisy. Well, that's the first lesson I think we learned from the first little act here. And then there's a second lesson. Secondly, show grace in the face of persecution. Show grace in the face of persecution. It seems that we humans are hardwired to retaliate. From the time we we're little kids, we want to get even when we are wrong. And even after we have learned to control our vengeful uh, desires, the truth is we still love to read stories and watch movies about sweet revenge, don't we? So when Jesus' disciples saw he was about to be arrested, they immediately pushed back. Had Jesus not just instructed them that a sword would now be part of their lives, surely this must be the time for the use of the sword. And so their immediate response was, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? Actually, the grammar indicates they weren't actually asking for permission. They were kind of saying, now it's time to strike, right? And of course, one disciple whom John identifies as Peter didn't wait for permission anyway. He struck the servant of the high priest, lopping off his ear. But Jesus had a quite different approach to this trouble, this persecution that he faced. Not only did he not call them to arms, he told them, stop, enough of this. And not only did he stop his disciples, he miraculously reattached the man's ear. His last miracle performed on his enemies. You see, here Jesus clarifies for us his earlier teaching about weapons. We know that some routinely carried swords in that day. Uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us the carrying of weapons was not unusual as Essene practice test, So there are legitimate times and places for weapons to be used in the defense of a nation in a just war, in self-defense when attacked by a criminal or wanting to do you harm, in defense of the defenseless when they are attacked. But keeping Jesus from having to go to the cross was not one of those times. Facing persecution for the gospel's sake, is not one of those times. Indeed, Luke may have included this account to raise the question of how, with a place of force in the life of, of, of Christians. That's quite a difficult question to examine, but it's worth your thought. But clearly, Jesus would have his church to know that he expects us to show grace in the face of persecution. Grace not retaliation, grace. This was especially important on that night of Jesus' arrest and trial, for during the hours of that night, the Jewish leaders would uh, seek evidence to convict him of being a revolutionary, uh, some kind of terrorist, some kind of anarchist. And surely a violent attack, resisting arrest, would be evidence enough. But that would have only obscured the point that Jesus came to give his life for sinners. So he showed grace in the face of persecution, and he expects us to do the same. After our study a couple of weeks ago on Jesus' instruction to buy a sword, someone reminded me of a truth that I knew, knew but had long forgotten. Remember the five missionaries killed in the 50s down in Ecuador by the Aka Indians who they were seeking to evangelize, Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and the three others. Did you know that as they were being attacked and killed with swords, they had loaded guns? We know at least two of them were carrying loaded guns. And they had plenty of time to use them. In fact, at least one shot was fired in the air as a warning, but never were the guns turned on the tribesmen who were attacking them. Though they easily could have killed those tribesmen, rather than being killed, rather than killing them, they elected to be killed if necessary. Steve Saint, the young son of Nate Saint, who was killed that day, had asked his father, he was a little kid, he had asked his father before, when if the awk is attacked, will you defend yourself? Will you use your guns? And Nate Saint had replied, son, we can't shoot them. They're not ready for heaven. We are. And so they allowed themselves not just in an instant, but over a period of time. They were on two sides of the river. They had to cross the river. There was lots of time in there. They allowed themselves to be speared and hacked to death rather than turning on those to whom they had come to tell about Jesus. As an Nate Saint now, an adult, puts it, no one took my father's life. He gave it. You see, Nate Saint and his missionary partners understood that we are called to show grace, the grace of our Savior, even in the face of deadly persecution. And in case you don't know the rest of the story, the Alka tribe was eventually evangelized as Nate Saint's sister and Jim Elliott's wife and children went back to that tribe to tell them the gospel. And so the Acha killers came to believe in Jesus partially by wanting to understand why would these missionaries allow themselves to be killed that way? Jesus calls us to grace in the face of persecution. That's the second lesson. Third, finally, the third thing. Serve the Lord Jesus as children of light. Serve the Lord Jesus as children of light. <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of talk about transparency these days, of leaders being open and honest and not hiding what they're doing. And so over, over the past few years, sunshine laws have been passed, forbidding government to do its business behind closed doors, requiring public hearings and open accountability. For even in secular circles, people recognize that there is a difference between the shady ways of darkness and the openness of living in the light. So how much more important is it for us, who know Jesus, the light of the world, who are called the children of light, how much more important is it for us to live openly and transparently, not hidden or deceitful in our motives and practices, to serve the Lord Jesus? as children of light. I think that's what we, do, we draw from this third act of this little tax this third part. Here we see the contrast between those walking in darkness, the Jewish leaders who came to arrest Jesus, and the Lord Jesus himself, who is the light of the world. The Jewish leaders plotted and schemed in secret. They paid Judas in secret to, to betray Jesus. They chose the cover of darkness to go and arrest him, to to, to hide the injustice that was going on, to to avoid the public furor over it. They acted wickedly, though they were supposedly ministers of righteousness, the leaders of, of, of God's church. They acted under the power and direction of the prince of darkness, who often appears as an angel of light. And as Jesus said there in the garden, that was their hour when the power of darkness reigned. But in contrast, Jesus, who is the light of the world, did not act in darkness or secrecy or deceit. He preached and taught openly, publicly for all to see. He made no pretense as to his identity or his motives He lived as one who had nothing to hide. As Robert Stein writes, the very fact that Jesus taught daily and openly in the temple distinguishes his activity from that of the revolutionaries who operated in the mountains and had to be hunted down. Jesus did not operate in the darkness as his opponents were presently doing, but in the light. And so recognizing this contrast, Jesus delivers his third rebuke To these religious leaders who had loved the darkness rather than the light. And he says to them, am I leading a rebellion? That you come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. Here Jesus is calling their hand. He's pointing out their devious, cowardly ways. Practices not worthy of the leaders of God's people. Here Jesus makes it clear that their actions, no matter how religious, were under the authority of the power of darkness, the evil one. Of course, they did not listen to him. But by calling them out, by distinguishing himself from from their ways of darkness, by identifying the real authority at work in them, the power of darkness that night, Jesus was also instructing us. His disciples on the importance of serving the Lord as children of light. Now, that may sound impossible to us. How can we walk in the light when the darkness is uh, seeking to overwhelm us everywhere? But we must, if we are disciples of the one who is the light of the world. That doesn't mean just that we get all absorbed in religious matters and forget about everything else in the world because we're following the light. Now these men were the leaders of Israel. They were steeped in the law of God. They were filled with religious manners. But they rejected the one who came proclaiming grace. They would not have him, for they loved their comfortable darkness, the darkness of self-righteousness, the darkness of pride, of position, and, and love of power the darkness of racial and religious superiority, the darkness of love for the status quo. So Jesus said in John 3, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes to the light so that it, it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. So Jesus teaches us by his example to serve him as children of light. Here we have a collision of light and darkness. That collision of light and darkness in our world, in the physical realm, can be both fearsome and beautiful at the same time. So here, as we see the ugliness of the night of sin, as religious leaders, and even one of Jesus' apostles is caught up in the evil, it looks like Darkness is overwhelming the world. But here we also see the light of the glory of the grace of God in Jesus shining through the darkness of that hour, and it is breathtaking. In this account, Jesus is not portrayed primarily as a victim, but as one on a mission, one in control of himself as he walks toward the cross. To some scholars, this is so obvious that they assume Luke must have made up these things. But, of course, that's not what happened. What we see here is God's sovereign plan being advanced, even by the hands of wicked men, if necessary. And Jesus, who has submitted to the will of the Father, moving purposefully toward the fulfillment of God's promises. And he's so certain of that that he's not afraid to rebuke, And confront the evil that he sees. To rebuke Judas for betraying him with a kiss. To rebuke the disciples for striking out with their sword. To rebuke the Jewish leaders who arrested him in secret, uh, acting in darkness, though he had walked in the light. And as we reflect on the substance of Jesus' statements, we find lessons for ourselves. Guard against the ugliness of our own hypocrisy. Show grace in the face of persecution like our Savior did. And in this dark world, serve the Lord Jesus, for we are the children of light. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this account that shows us the glory of our Savior and for his rebukes that uh, cause us to think about his concerns and to drive uh, lessons for ourselves, help us, Lord, to not just uh, go glibly on doing whatever comes natural to us, for it comes natural to us, Lord, to be hypocrites. And it comes natural to us to seek revenge in the face of uh, of trouble, and it comes natural to us, Lord, to hide our actions and hide our motives and to not come to the light. So, Lord, we need you working in us to transform us, to make us what Jesus is, to, tr- trans- to change us uh, from the inside until we walk as children of light. Do so, we pray in his name. Amen.